0: Alright, good morning once again. Let's uh, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to keep going through the letter that Paul wrote there in 55 AD by inspiration of the Spirit to the Corinthians. Last week, uh, before we start, um, these, these two weeks are probably not your average church sermons because we're talking about some pretty sensitive things that happen, and last week we talked a lot about where Paul is talking to the Corinthians, and he's saying, look, you want to steer clear of, of uh, sex before marriage. And obviously that's kind of a, I don't want to say a hot topic, but it can be a difficult topic. Um, and so I, I received a, a lot of different feedback, and I want to, not <laughs> negative or attacking or anything like that, this isn't like I'm going to use the pulpit to be a jerk, but so there, was a, there were some folks that were concerned that I didn't mention hell enough. And there were some folks that were concerned that there wasn't enough comfort. And there were some folks that just said, hey, I was really glad uh, to hear that. I wish somebody had told me that when I was 13. And so the, the first address I'd like to make is the, the idea that fornication sells, sends a person to hell. The exact quote was there are billions and millions of Christians that are in hell right now because their pastor didn't tell them that fornication will send them there. And the problem with that thinking is that fornication doesn't send anybody to hell. Rejecting Jesus does. And that's really important. And I understand that in church a lot of times sex before marriage can have a stigma or we can look at people and go, oh, you're dirty this, you're that. And that's wrong. They're human beings. We're all human beings that need Jesus. right? So the second idea The reason that I like to talk about the physiological or the physical things behind a lot of God's commands is because the Bible is written, you know, over the course of 1,500 years by 44 authors, and uh, and it was it's always been right. So it's right on physiology, it's right on math, it's right on science, it's always right. And so when God comes along and He says, "Hey, don't have a bunch of sexual partners," there's physiological reasons for it, and that's why we talked about oxytocin and dopamine and the things that can happen to our brains if we have a lot of partners and these type of things. That being said, it's not a condemnation. It's not saying if you've had one partner or two partners or a thousand that somehow you're condemned by God or there's no hope for you or anything like that. So I want to address that. There's very much hope for you. There's hope for psychological healing, spiritual healing, all that. So there's no condemnation to in Christ. There's warnings about what sex with many partners will do to us and why the Bible says we ought not to do it, but there is absolute hope and expectation in redemption if we've gone down that road, okay? And lastly, the the idea of of people that were thankful and and hope that, you know, they wish that they had been told those things, that's the only heart behind it. I I don't know about you, but I like reality. It's what I liked when I worked for Medics Ambulance. It's one of the things I loved about working for Medics Ambulance no one cleans their house when they call 911. A lot of people don't even put clothes on, right? They just call 911 because they got an arm. And so you get to see what real life is like all the time. You know, and the crazy things that happen. We, you know, we have crews you get yelled at for blocking the, the TV while doing CPR. Seriously. You know? So that's where people are at. So when we read things about, like, fornication or whatever, to try to shy away from that or just try to not talk about what it really is, I think it's a disservice. So I I never want to be crass or angry or condemnation. That's never my heart. But it's just reality. And so hopefully we can look at 1 Corinthians 6 with a lens of reality and redemption. And hopefully we can do the same with 1 Corinthians 7. Because if you thought last week was uncomfortable, buckle your (laughs) seatbelts. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about, and I want to take note of that. So Paul is responding to the Corinthians, right? There had been a letter, uh, most likely by the household of Chloe, we're told in chapter 1. And that letter was an expression of difficulties and things that were going poorly and wrong or sinful, however you would like to phrase it, there at the church in Corinth. And so Paul is responding to this. They asked a question, and now he's responding to that question. That's valuable to us because it gives us a context, right? So the Corinthian church is wondering about this thing. And now Paul is going to answer them on that. That doesn't mean it doesn't apply to us. It doesn't mean that it's not for us. But it can maybe help us understand exactly why he goes through the stuff that he goes through. But he says there in verse 1, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps for a mutual, uh, by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you, because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, and not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each one of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, and another has that. So this is a bit of an uncomfortable topic, and Paul is talking about sexual relations in a marriage. Uh, I've had the, the privilege, um, this is something that I think is interesting to me, I've been to about, uh, well, I've, I've been involved in, in, in a part of uh, about six or seven men's conferences, and I've never been to a women's conference, but six or seven men's <laughs> conference, and um, in diff- three different places, and over the span of 15 years, and at those men's conferences, I would say that the, the most, the biggest dilemma that ever gets talked about is two things. One, I feel disrespected by my wife, and I'm not saying that women don't have—we'll cover that too. We're not going. This is not a one-sided thing. It's, we're not going to get weird, if we're not already. One is, I feel disrespected by my wife, and second, I don't have enough sex, and I don't know how to deal with that. So those are probably the two largest things that we talk about at men's conferences. Not that all the the the, the uh, I should say at the key, at the question and answers. Not, not, obviously, the topics aren't all about that. But so those are one of the, the biggest things that are on men's hearts. Now, last week, we talked about a little bit, some of the statistics about pornography, right? So 67% of men regularly look at pornography, and 70% of those men have try, state they have tried to stop, and they can't. All right, so tuck that away. So that means when you walk through Fred Meyer, 7 out of 10 dudes that you see in Fred Meyer are regularly looking at porn, Okay? And the numbers are the same for the church. There's no difference between Barna and secular numbers. 37% of women, say, when, when polled, say that they regularly look at pornography. And 70% of those 37% say they've tried to stop and they can't. Right? We talked about this last week. And so when you're walking through Fred Meyer, just know that four out of the ten women that you see have a regular habitual habit of pornography. Okay? That's not condemnation. That's not anger. That's not. We're just talking about facts, and and why we're mentioning those. We'll talk about in a minute. So, in Corinth, remember, Corinth is the the epicenter of the ancient world for wickedness. This is important. Right? We've talked about this. And again, not to be crass, but we're setting a stage here, an understanding of what's happening. And so in, in Corinth, you have regular pedophilia as a form of worship to, to false gods. You have phallic symbols in the form of statues, literally lining streets on some streets. You have temples devoted to certain body parts. You have uh, porn- pornography in those Roman public toilets where it was just basically like a U, and everybody just sat together naked and did their business, and they would have porn on the walls. Uh, bars in Pompeii, porn on the walls, right? So you can, that's, that's all going on. All, all that to say is their culture is a little bit different than ours in the, in the biblical Roman culture, in that they don't have telephones and they can't bring up pornography, but it's a very over-sexualized culture. Our culture, we don't necessarily have those things in our bars and our walls. I mean, sometimes, I guess we do, but, but realistically, we have, we have an over-sexualized TV, movies, everything is sexual. You want to sell a hamburger? What do you do it with? Women in bikinis washing a car, right? You want to sell beer, what do you do it with? Women in bikinis on a beach. You want to sell whatever it is, right? It's, it's sexual. Sex sells. We all know that. So what's the point? Why, why are we talking about this? When you have an oversexualized society, that society is filled with over-sexualized individuals, right? Because society is just made up of individuals. That's what it is. There's a really interesting statistics that show since since the average age for boys to be exposed to pornography is eight years old in the United States, and then you start looking at the fact of what happens in brain development between the ages of five and eight, that there's there's neural connection between the two halves of the brain, but it really begins to solidify between the ages of five and eight, which is why a kid who's molested between the ages of five and eight has lifelong, typically lifelong... um, sexual dilemmas, if we can just put it that way, difficulties in the sense of what they find attractive or, or um, how they relate to sex because it develops these neural um, pathways, these neural connections uh, prematurely. So what we have in the United States, the re- one of the reasons we have these statistics is we have these children and, and adults that are exposed to these things at very early ages and it develops habitual uh, 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 thought process and, and actions, physical actions, right? It, it stokes passions, all those things. So there's, there's radical things that happen in kids, and so you end up with a radically sexualized society. So with that in mind, it's important that we understand Paul now is addressing something, and he's saying here, he says, look, he says, when, when you have a marriage, so he's speaking about marriage, and that's really what chapter 7 is, is all about, is marriage, uh, sex and marriage, marriage and divorce, and, and then a little bit, there's a little section about uh, once we get saved, how, you know our job status and how we continue with that. But in this section, in this over-sexualized society, very much like our own, Paul's now saying, look, in a marriage, because there's sexual immorality abounding, right? Verse 2, he says, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman should have with her husband. So one of the reasons he gives, and not the only reason, he says, look, because this this sexual uh, uh, immorality is an abounding thing because it's in a constant thing, then there should be an outlet inside of marriage to have sex, right? A sanctified sexual outlet, if we could look at. Sanctified means just set aside. We know God is the, he he created sex. We know that he is the one who uh, developed how babies get born, that whole thing, right? We know that. So because of this society that people are living in, the, the sexual intensity that there is, the temptation and all those things, marriage is supposed to be the place where there can be a relieving of that tension and that temptation. Now some of this may, may feel us a little uncomfortable. Verse 3 says, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. And the wife does not have authority, verse 4, over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife. Now, I don't know about you, but I have definitely heard that misused. I've heard those couple of verses weaponized uh, in a marriage to basically be like, hey, you need to give it up, husband, or hey, you need to give it up, wife. I'm feeling frisky, and, and this is what the Bible says, and so therefore you owe me, or something like that. And one of the things that's important to remember about the Bible, about the writings, Paul, all the writings in the Bible, is that nothing exists in a vacuum. You guys know what that means? We, that, that gets said a lot. Nothing exists in a vacuum. So when you say nothing exists in a vacuum, the idea is that if you had a, uh, some sort of container and you were to pull everything out of it except one item, then that item wouldn't be acted on by anything, right? There'd be nothing to interfere with it. So in other words, if you say, this is the way that you win a war... Well, that might always be true because there's all these different things that can affect that, right? So when you use the phrase in a vacuum, what you're saying is nothing else can affect this. So when the scripture is written and read and considered, it doesn't exist where there's not reality. It doesn't exist where there's not context and differences and things that, to, to, the, that affect how we look and how we read and how we apply it. So when you look at these verses, they're not to just be held on their own and because there's a whole context for marriage. And I want to look at that, if you don't mind. In Ephesians chapter 5, you want to look over there. Ephesians chapter 5 is always the first passage that I turn to in, in premarital stuff and even postmarital stuff. Not that I have the, the market on that. I definitely do not. But I think it's one of the most helpful understandings. Because in, you know, in, in the first couple of chapters of, of Ephesians, Paul, as he normally does in all his letters, is talking about what Jesus did for us. The fact that Christ paid the penalty for our sin. The fact that when he was at the cross, when he shed blood, he was acting as the perfect sacrifice for you and me. That what we owe God was paid in the blood of Christ. And then he rose again from the dead. And in raising from the dead, he showed his power over it. And that that, that resurrection was not just in secret, but proven to hundreds of people that saw him and bear testimony of it. And so we all find our forgiveness in that. But the 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 uh, anyway, sorry. We'll keep going. The 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 context here in Ephesians chapter five is after we've we've gotten saved, after we've received forgiveness from the cross, how we can act in our lives, right? And so in chapter four, we talked about our interactions at church and how when we come to church, we're to be those that don't walk in in a way that is demanding, but we all of us walk in and say, hey, what can I I do to to bless people today? How we can interact with other people with their gifts, and they can interact with our gifts and so forth. And then in chapter 5, he's going to talk about how we walk internally as we want to walk in the light. And then the end of 5 through 6, he's going to talk about all our relationships and how being Christians can affect our relationships. So the kind of the the conclusion to walking in the light and how it affects our relationships starts in Ephesians 5 and verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God and the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus. So in his conclusion to walking in the light, responding to the gift of the cross, he says this, that we should be careful. Now, some of your Bibles might say to walk circumspectly. How does anybody's Bible say that? To walk circumspectly. And really what the word means is to walk looking in every direction. <laughs> it's to walk in a way where you're constantly considering things. You're, you're looking behind you to see what happened in the past. You're looking at different options. And it's wisdom, right? Wisdom is properly uh, applying the knowledge that you have. So he says, as Christians who are walking in the light, we're to be considerate of how we are acting and how we're thinking and these types of things. He's going to go on to say that we ought to be making the most of every opportunity when those opportunities come up. And then he makes a statement in verse 18, don't be drunk with wine, which is, leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So obviously, this is not a commentary on drinking, right? Because the context here has nothing to do with drinking. Really, the commentary is on two different influences. So he's saying what we should be walking wisely, right? Then after walking wisely, he says we shouldn't be getting drunk with wine because that's debauchery. Again, if this was some sort of authoritative don't be drunk with wine, well then, hey, beer's cool and... Feel free, to hit the hard liquor, just not wine. I mean, that doesn't make sense. What he's saying is, debauchery means it's too much, it's excess. It's not good, it's bad, right? So he's making a comparison. He's saying that we shouldn't be influenced by and considering through and looking through the lens of self-medication, of alcohol. We don't want to be drunk with that. We don't want it to be influencing our thoughts and our opinions and these different things, influencing how we look at things. Instead, he says, as the Christian who's desiring to walk in the light, meaning an open relationship with God, honesty with God. He says that that we ought to be those who are being filled with the Spirit. And it's the the idea of the present active, which means be being filled with the Spirit. Always continually be be being filled with the Spirit. So it's it's the idea of something we're continually engaging ourselves in, opening ourselves up to, the Spirit of God. Lord, what do you have for me today? Lord, how do you want to work in my heart today? Lord, how do you feel about this thought that's going on in my mind? How do you think about what I just said? How do you, right? It's be being filled, that, that continual consideration of God's Spirit in our hearts. So he says in this conclusion to walking in the light and now in his introduction to how we have our other relationships that we're to address those wisely, that we're considering what will, this, what will my words do? If these things come out of my mouth, what will that engage? Is it going to engage love? Is it going to engage care? Is it gonna engage humility? Is it going to engage uh, further conversation? Or is it going to annoy and destroy and mock and cause someone either to become aggressive? Is it going to escalate a situation? Is it going to cause someone to be able to not consider a situation? What are my next words and actions going to do, right? Am I going to be deluded in my thinking by the influences of this world, such as wine and so forth? Or am I going to be influenced and walk with the Spirit of God? That's what he's talking about. So the next verse after that, verse 21, he says, submit to one another out of a reverence for Christ. Now, this is interesting. He's about to go into husbands and wives. He's about to go into children. He's about to go into uh, masters and slaves or bosses and, and, and employees. And so, but, he, but the, the last verse before he goes into individual relationship is this We submit to one another. That's how our relationship works as Christians. When I walk into church, I don't walk in and say, That's right, I'm here. <laughs> Serve me. You're welcome, everybody, for my presence, right? We don't, we don't walk in, hopefully, our heart when we walk in is, I hope the, the sermon better be the right sermon, the worship better be the right worship, the coffee better be the right coffee, and doggone it, if they don't have the creamer I like, and if they don't have the kids' ministry I like, and if they, right? There's lots of YouTube, you know, kind of uh, flippancy and sarcasm about that, that we can watch, right? Me church and these different kind of funny videos, drive through church, uh, where people order what they want at church, and, you know, that kind of thing. And, then, and it's, it's, it's funny because a lot of it's true. But instead of walking in, not that our, a church has, shouldn't, as a collective shouldn't have things to offer us and shouldn't be walking with Jesus generally and collectively. We're not saying that. But we walk in, hopefully, walking in with a heart of submission. I'll listen to somebody that I don't want to listen to. I'll bear the brunt of something I don't want to bear the brunt of. If I can somehow walk and help someone today, I'm open for that. I don't have to have my way here today. This doesn't have to be about me today, right? That our interactions with one another, biblically speaking, which I realize this is a pretty large subject, but biblically speaking are to be one of submission. That doesn't mean we stick around for abuse. It doesn't mean that we just allow uh, people to just treat us like dirt all the time. We're not saying that. Those are the outliers. We're just saying that our general... Outlook as Christians, light-filled, spirit-filled Christians, is that we are here to lay down our lives daily so that we can help other people. And Christ will raise us up. And that's what he taught us, right? That if those who seek to save their lives, what does it mean to save my life? It means to insist on what I want. It means to insist on what I think will satisfy me and to voice it when I don't. So if we seek to constantly add and save our lives through our own wills and basis, it will lead to farther and further loneliness, anxiety, depression, because what we do, we we actually somewhat succeed at preserving ourselves, we protect ourselves, and then we find the emptiness of it. And it's brutal. It's a brutal emptiness. So Paul says, this is how we walk as Christians, and we walk subject to one another. And it's after that where he then says, wives, submit to your husbands. And then if you skit down, he says to husbands, verse 25, love your wives. But then he concludes the whole thing. And that's, I understand that might have been a can of worms. But he concludes the whole thing in verse 33 by saying this. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. And this is what I want to get to. Because 1 Corinthians 7 doesn't just exist on its own, it exists in real life. The concept that my body is not mine, it's my wife's, and that her body is not her, it's mine. But that concept is tempered by, and, and foundation, the, the, the foundation of it is this. That a husband must see to it that he loves his wife. And a wife must see, must see to it that she respects her husband. Notice they didn't use the same word there. The idea that a a, a husband must see to it that he loves his wife, it's must. It's an emphatic. It it has to be this way in a marriage. And the word love there is the, the idea of cherish or literally to kiss. A husband must cherish his wife. And a wife must respect her husband. Because this is how men and women, in general, receive love. If you don't cherish your wife, if you don't do things to show your wife that you care about her, if you just come home and throw your junk on the couch and, you know, how was your day? Fine, okay, good. And you go to the fridge and you grab your beverage of choice and you sit on the couch and go like full-on Ed Bundy from Married with Children, your marriage is going to have issues, isn't it? Your wife may continue to dwell with you. She may be kind to you. She may continue to you know, do whatever it is that works out in your marriage. But the bottom line is there's going to be a severe lack in that, isn't there? And so if you have, depending on what your wife is like, right, because there's type A and type B personalities in men and women, if your wife is a type A personality, then likely that will be met with resistance and with argument. What are you doing? Every day you come home and you just throw your crap down and you expect me to do everything. What is your problem? All right, that's going to be kind of an alpha response. And then that's going to escalate, isn't it? Because if you're an alpha male, you're going to stand up from your, your couch and be like, I just worked all day. I don't know what your deal is. Just make some dinner. I make the money. All right? Now, if you're a, a type B personality, it might go a little different because type A usually meets with aggression. Type B meets with retraction. So if you're a type B personality and you're not cherishing your wife, she will most likely retract. In other words, she'll pull away from you. She'll, she, if she's a Christian woman walking with Jesus, then that retraction may only be internally and she'll continue to be a blessing to you. But realistically, she'll pull away from you because she won't feel loved by you. She won't know that she's safe with you. She won't know that she's cherished by you. It'll develop anxiety in her. It'll develop depression in her because she'll feel to some extent that what is her purpose in this marriage and what's the point of this? Right, These are just facts. This is how people work. If you, have a, if you have a type B personality male, he will also retract. But his retraction will be more just ignoring. Yeah, 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 you don't like it, I'm on the couch. Okay, cool. I'm just going to go to my happy place now and I'm going to watch the game. Or I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. And they'll shut him out. So we have to understand that, that when we talk about in 1 Corinthians 7 that we're to be available sexually to our spouses, we have to understand that depending on which side of the availability we're on, we have to understand that we're to treat one another certain ways. Men, if you don't cherish your wives, she will be upset with you or retract from you. Wives, if you disrespect your husbands, if you nitpick them, if you tell them everything that they're doing is wrong, if you say, I don't like the way you do the bills and I don't like the way you do this and I think it's crazy, my, my friend's husband doesn't do that. If you disrespect them, they will come back with aggression if they have a type A personality. I don't know what your problem is. I don't want to hear it. Right? They'll do things that make you angrier. They'll escalate the situation. And if you have a type B personality, they'll just retract from you. So Paul has this ingenious reality he writes where he says if you are a husband, you must cherish your wife if you want your relationship to be good. Paul, or I should say Peter writes it this way. He says, husbands, don't... um, Dwell with your wives with understanding, and not just understanding like I know you're my wife, but understanding in the context of you get to know her. What makes her happy? What what gives her comfort? What stresses her out? You know, uh, those are things like that. Tam and I had to go through. I know that like if I get up and do the dishes, it makes her really happy. If I invite twenty people over to the house that night, it makes her not happy. Right? <laughs> You wouldn't think so, but I had to learn that. Uh, You know, I'd invite people over to the house, like a whole family, like, yeah, just come on, Sunday, man, just come on, Sunday dinner together. And she'd be like, "Uh," I'm like, what are you stressed about? Let's, (laughs) Let's whip something out, it'll be fine. You know, I had to learn, like, well, I have a menu, and that's not on it, and now we have to go to the store, and I don't know if the food budget can support that. And so that was things for us that I learned, well, this stresses her out, and this blesses her, right? And so, dwelling with our wives with understanding is what's going to strengthen our relationship. So let's throw a little, a little more uh, physiology into this. There are very few neural connectors in a man's brain between his emotional centers and his sexual centers. I'm sorry ladies, it's just the truth. There are, generally speaking, significantly more neural pathways between a woman's emotional centers of her brain and the sexual so what turns her on, her sexual centers of her brain. And so if you don't cherish your wife, it is most likely she is not going to be, have a huge desire to be intimate with you. And then if we weaponize things like 1 Corinthians 7 and say, well, you owe me sex because we got married and this is what the Bible says. That's going to make it even worse, right? So we can't do that as men. If you are a female and you're uh, interested in, in more sexual contact and touch from your husband... You can't disrespect him all the time, treat him poorly, and then be like, why aren't you snuggling with me on the couch? It's just reality, right? It's where we live. So Paul is making this argument and saying, look, this is how relationships work in general. And one of the reasons, again, here the Bible is, in AD 55, Paul writing to Corinth, and it's still right. It's still correct. It's still the way relationships work. It's still how people work. And Paul's saying this is how a relationship has to work. So when, as, as people that are seeking to be productive in God's kingdom, people that are seeking to be productive in a marriage, but when I, I mean productive, I mean making good fruit, having good things come out of it, having a, a joyful marriage and having you know, all the, the great things that come out of it, to have it, to have it be like we, we hear oftentimes that it's a testimony, a picture. It's a metaphor for Christ and his church. The fact that Christ loves the church and laid down his life for the church, made sure the church was squared away, provides for the church, and then you have the church who's there to, to, to bless and to be part of, what the, the, uh, part of what Christ is doing. You have this amazing relationship where, where the, this, this huge testimony of God's goodness gets revealed. That's how those things happen. I think it's also noteworthy that when we got married, notice that marriage is never referred to as a contract. I mean, they have contracts now. They have prenups and so forth. But in the past and in scripturally, it's always a covenant, entering the covenant of marriage. Because a covenant is not a contract. A contract says, if you do this, then I'll do this, right? A contract says, if you put new paint on my house, then I will give you these dollars, right? Isn't that what a contract says? And so therefore, if you don't put this paint on my house, I'm not giving you those dollars, But marriage is not a contract. We made vows when we got married. We said, I vow to do this. I vow to treat you right. I vow, you know, whatever your vow said, if they were traditional, you made your own, however that went, we made vows. And it's a covenant, meaning I'm going to do this regardless of what you do. That's what a vow is. That's what a covenant is. Now we can, next week, we'll talk all about divorce. Yay. But we can talk all about divorce next week and how it works, and biblically what it means, and how that works out, and all that kind of stuff. So we're just, it's just loads of fun topics. I tell you what, this morning, I was just thinking to myself, can we move on? I mean, <laughs> I really was. I mean, I love the Bible. I'm into it. But can't we just talk about how good Jesus is, and like just, just follow him? But I think that this is honestly, these couple chapters are some of the most the questions that we have, the, the dilemmas that we have, all these things, they, they're right here. And Paul's laying it out by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Here's how we can deal with these things. So that to be said, we'll, go, we'll flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So that to be said, when Paul's talking here and he says, look, you should fulfill your duty to your spouse. He says that to husbands and wives. It's not just this arbitrary thing where, where, where one person, the more if, there, if you have in a relationship, and this is typically what happens, you have in a relationship someone who has, is, has more sexual appetite than the other. This happens a lot. And so when, when, when Paul breaks it down, he's saying, look, you need to provide for the appetite of your, uh, of your partner. And we'll talk about why in a second, because he covers that. But as a partner who may be wanting the more sex, you have to acknowledge and understand that there is a dynamic in relationships. You can't be a jerk and expect sex. You can't. From either side. It's not right. It's not moral. It's not okay. To try to use this passage to strong arm your spouse into sexual relations is immoral. But it's also a warning to the person who has the lesser appetite to say, you have a function to be involved in and to help your spouse sexually. Especially in a a day and age where the uh, sexual arousal is being stoked in every corner that we look. It's important. And he's actually going to talk about that, right? Because then in verse, uh, he goes on there. In verse five, he says, "Do not deprive each other, except." so he's going to give three exceptions, perhaps by mutual consent, and for a time, and so that you may devote yourselves to prayer." So he says, "Here's the reason. He said, "The only time that you're to stop having a regular sexual rea- uh, uh, sexual relationship is if it's by mutual consent." So number one is by mutual consent. And so here's the thing. There can be a million reasons why you don't have sex, right? Injury, post-pregnancy after a baby is born, depression, anxiety. There can be a lot of things that your partner is going through that they may not want to be sexually active. And so as a partner who may be going through those things, it's your responsibility to remember that you can still serve your spouse. And spouse, it's your responsibility to remember that you need to serve them in their difficulty. And so to insist one way or the other, you see, it's kind of like both sides have responsibility there. And both sides can sin. I'm not saying if you're injured, it's a sin. I'm saying that both sides, if you're just withholding because you just want to withhold, Paul says, don't, you can't do that and not have a healthy marriage. He says it's immorally wrong. So he's going to go on there. And so he says, it's by mutual consent. Second, it's for a time. In other words, there's a time limit that you know how long you're going to abstain for is isn't just this, well, we'll get around to it when we get around to it, or this, this idea that, you know what, I'm fine, so you should be fine too. He says, no, it's for a time. And then lastly, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. I've never said that before, but I imagine there's someone somewhere out there that was like, not tonight, I need to pray, all right? So he says, for spiritual activity, that, that by mutual consent, that, that, that that's, there's, there's an idea there. So those are the three things he says. Again, and I can't emphasize enough that there's going to be other reasons that fit in with this uh, that that you cannot continue in sexual activity. Okay, But this is the reason that he gives for this. This is important. And this is important for a lot of different things. Because he says, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So here's the thing. This concept is throughout the New Testament. And I want to lay a basis here by saying this. Every single human being on the planet is responsible for their own sexual sin. All right, That's important. If you have a spouse or you are looking at pornography because you don't have enough sex in your life, that is your sin and you need to own it. If you are objectifying women or objectifying men as sexual objects, that is your sin and nobody else's but yours. But the concept here that that Paul puts out, this is also very important. He doesn't say, if you don't have sex with your spouse, it's their fault if they go out on you. He does not say that. But what he does say is this. If you abstain from sex with your spouse, you are exposing them to unwarranted and unneeded temptation. Did you catch that? He says, make sure you come back together so that the spouse isn't tempted by Satan. So even though every single person's sin is their own, right? If I say something, or you know, if you say something rude to me, and I have a freak out, the freak out is my sin, right? But you helped me to it. And Paul is saying the same thing. In sexual relations, that a, that a spouse has an opportunity to help the other spouse to relieve temptation. And there's a lot of physiological reasons that we can cite for that. For example, in men... Men have a 72-hour testosterone cycle. Sorry, guys, we have a cycle too. And so every 72 hours in men, uh, testosterone peaks. And if you're familiar with testosterone, testosterone leads to aggression, sexual passion, right? all these types of things. So every 72 hours, men peak, in in a sense, in a sexual way, desiring sex. Now, age and diet and all sorts of things can affect that. So just know that. Well, all I'm saying is, and I'm not saying if you're not having sex every 72 hours, you're depriving your man. I'm not saying that either. I'm making no rules. There's no schedules. There's no diagrams. We're not doing any of that, all right? I'm just saying that if you want to know, there are many physiological reasons why Paul comes along and says, if you are... On a continual sexual basis with your partner, you will be helping them, if they are the more hot blooded partner, as it were, you will be helping them to be delivered from temptation. If they sin, it's their fault. But we can help them. Does that make sense? This is really important because it's a concept that's throughout the old, the entire, the entire New Testament, that everybody's sin is their own fault, but I can help them not to do it. Does that make sense? It's not laid at my feet, but I can help them. So Paul notes in this scenario that there is a help that can be had by keeping up in a sexual relationship. It does not mean that when you stand before Jesus, there's going to be some sort of accusation like, well, your husband cheated on you because you weren't having enough... No, we're not saying that at all. We're just saying that he notes that you can help. And then he says in verse 6, I say this as a concession and not a command. That's not marriage, He's not saying, oh, marriage is a concession, and you go, why do you say that? Well, if you begin to read the rest of the chapter, he does talk about that a little bit. But the concession is the ability to stop, not a command to stop. Does that make sense? Paul's just clarifying. He's, he's saying, I'm not saying that you should stop for prayer. He's just saying that, you know what, it's okay if you do. Does that make, does that, you understand what I'm saying? So that's when he says it's not a concession, or excuse me, when he says it's a concession, not a command. That's what he's referring to. And then lastly, he says this. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, and another has that. So what he's talking about is that Paul. Nobody truly knows Paul's marital status. Okay, we know that to be a member of the Sanhedrin, which he apparently was, you had to have a wife. In fact, in Jewish culture, uh, it was pretty much obligatory. Unless you were uh, and it's kind of sad, actually unless you were uh, impotent as a male, you were expected to get married. It, it was very odd if you did not. And so one of the things that, that Paul is, is pointing out here, he's saying that it's, it's countercultural in the Greek or in the, the Hebrew culture, is he's saying, "It's okay to be single." <laughs> If you're a dude specifically, but even, uh, you know, uh, societally even as a female, he says, you, it's okay to be single. And what he expresses here, because he's going to go on to talk about a present distress and the possibility of impending um, uh, persecution and all these kind of things. What he's, he's kind of transitioning his idea here at this point. But what he's saying is that he has this gift where he doesn't feel the need for relationship, for marriage, or for sex. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, I wish that you were like me in that. But he says, if you're not like me in that, and this isn't, when he, when he says here, we'll reread it. When he says here, um, I wish you were all as I am, but each of you has your own gift. One has this gift and one has another. Or I'm sorry, in verse 5, uh, will, not, excuse me, will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This isn't an accusation. He's not saying uh, he's not making an accusation against them or some sort of condemnation. He's just saying, because this exists in your life, you, know, you want to continue in your sexual relationship in your, in your uh, marriage. So when he gets back down here to verse 7, I wish you were like, as I am, he's just saying, I wish that you guys didn't have that desire. Now, because he, some people think that Paul had an annulled marriage or something to that effect, uh, because he was a member, evidently, a member of the Sanhedrin, and he would have had to be married for that to happen. But now throughout the entire New Testament, he never references a wife. And when he does represent wives, he represents it in um, the kind of the uh, theoretical where he says, don't I have a right to have a wife too, just like Peter or the Lord's brother James? So he acknowledges that Peter and James were married, but he doesn't attribute himself to be married. So whether his marriage was annulled or somehow by, seems unlikely, uh, he was on the Sanhedrin not being married, whatever it was, he's just saying God has given him this gift to be celibate and to be unmarried. And he says, I, I wish that you guys had this gift. Now, he's going to go on to talk about that, to say because there's, the, there's persecution coming down the line and these type of things, but he's, he may, I think it's a good point. He just says, it's a It's a gift. And so if you don't have that gift, it's not a shame to you. It's not, like, it's not like, oh, I'm subpar, and so I have to get married, or, oh, I want to have children, or, oh, that's not his point at all. That would actually be completely different than God's commandments and his, his whole thought process way back in Genesis, Right? Because he says, he says in Genesis, it's not good for man to be alone. And he creates Eve, and they have this relationship, and it's supposed to be great. And they, they have the, you know, the children and, and these type of things. And we have the Proverbs, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. You have all sorts of New Testament and Old Testament evidence that marriage is a good thing. So it's not, you're, not, you're not subpar. It's not like, well, the real hardcore, those people just bachelors to the rapture you know, or something like that. He's just saying either you have this gift or you don't. And I think it's pretty self-evident, to be honest. I think you know in yourself what kind of desires you have, what you're looking for, or or not. And so having said that, I'm not making any commentary to people's uh, marital status or if they want to be or don't want to be. I'm just saying you know if you have the gift or if you don't have the gift. So what is the point of all this? The point is this. For married couple... And and really, every single context for relationship, we're to be preferring the other person. That's what it is, which is really yucky sometimes, right? It's really hard sometimes because it feels really good to prefer ourselves. If we didn't do like it, we wouldn't do it, right? I mean, if it felt good to always prefer others, it would just come naturally, And so what it comes down to for us so often is taking steps, as David put it in the Psalms, to taste and see that the Lord is good, to begin to walk in these new ways. As Paul puts it, walking in the light, as we read in Ephesians 5. To begin to walk circumspectly. You know, again, since we're just kind of on the marriage train, the best thing you can do in your marriage, somebody when when my wife and I got married, 20 years Wednesday, what? When we got married and we went through some premarital stuff, one of the coolest things in the world was, this guy's name was Dan Naughty, which is obviously the best last name ever. But he's, he said, he told us, he goes, you know what? Marriage should be a race to humble yourself. That's what it should be. Every discussion in your marriage, it should be a race to see who humbles themselves first. And, and it doesn't mean like if you're getting beat, that you just humble yourself and just continue. That's not what we're saying. We're not talking about extreme outliers. We're talking about everyday conversation. Obviously, if you're being abused, if you're being, you know, sexually abused or you're being um, physically abused or emotionally abused, you need to get help. You do. If you're being, if you're being physically abused, you know, you need, to, you need to find help and you need to get out of the situation. All right? Because your kids are not going to benefit from you just getting the poo beat out of you all the time by someone who's not walking like a Christian. That your kids aren't going to get any value out of you being berated all the time if, if, if that's what's happening. So we're not advocating to stay in abuse here. I want to make that very clear. Uh, we're advocating that in everyday conversation, you know, the funny thing is, I don't know, last year sometime, Tam and I had some wicked fight and I don't remember what it was about. I can't remember. I still can't remember what it was. It's probably something stupid. It probably just I escalated something like an idiot. But I remember being like, "I'm going to work," which is here, which I thought was obviously there's an irony in that. So I go outside and I put my bag in the put my bag in the van, and I'm like, "I'm gonna," you know. And it was it was really odd because this kind of like still small voice just whispered in my heart and said, "If you leave now, things will be different." And I had never heard that from the Lord before, and I'm not a big mystical message guy as you guys know. but well, there's been a few times where I feel like the Lord really spoke directly to me. And I was just like, ah, I just got in the car and went to leave and I just feel like if you leave now, things are going to be different. So I got out of the car I went back in the house, <laughs> you know, and I said, you know, um, I don't want to leave things undone because I'm concerned that it'll damage our marriage permanently. And Tam was... So glad that I came back. And this isn't, a, I'm a hero, because I've been a jerk a giant times. And I, I, this isn't, a James is a hero of marriage, because I'm not. But it was one of the few times where I listened to the Lord, <laughs> and it really mended our relationship. Not that we had some big rift, but it, it made it stronger than it was before. It's kind of like a weld. When you, when you weld two pieces of metal, they're actually stronger after the weld than they were if they were one piece the whole time. And so, all I'm saying is this that if you should decide to humble yourself and obey the Lord, good fruit will come from it. And so, we will never win. The relationship will never prosper if we try to dominate each other into subjection to our wills. It will never prosper. You may get your will, and you may get your way doing that, or manipulating, or guilt and shame or whatever ways we can try to get what we want in a relationship. So you may get what you want, but you'll lose not salvation, but real life. You'll lose the vitality. You'll lose the joy. You'll lose the camaraderie. You'll lose the the, the thing that marriage is supposed to be. Isn't that what it's supposed to be? Marriage is supposed to be where you just sit on the couch in your skivvies if you want to, and you don't even care because it's your husband, it's your wife, and you're just hanging out there, right? It's the time that you, you wear the shorts you'd never wear somewhere else. You wear the PJs. Let's be honest, the bra comes off. You watch TV. It's how it works, right? That's what marriage is supposed to be. And so by just generally insisting on our will, it never will be. But upon humbling ourselves, cherishing, respecting, it'll be something amazing. And from there, from there, that's all of a sudden you can invite people and this may sound weird, but hear me out. You can invite people to be involved with you in your marriage in the sense of just, hey, come over for dinner. Hey, why don't you hang out with us? Hey, yeah, you can just come and sit on the couch with us. We can watch some, of course, I won't wear those shorts, but, you know, we can just watch some, whatever. You know what I mean? All of a sudden, your, your, your relationship becomes a testimony, not because you're making it a testimony, not because you're like, come over and see how much my wife and I are like Christ in the church, Right? but well, because the people just see you and go, that's crazy. You guys are like nice to each other. You don't have underhanded insults, sarcasm. You know, I tell you, it's a sad thing. It's, to me, it's one of the most sad things in the world when you see a couple and they belittle each other. Such a bummer. You know, again, if one last application, and you don't have to take this. You can take it or leave it. something that we were told when we got married, and it just, it just lasted in my head. Two other things that have really worked for us Never say divorce. Don't even say it. Don't say it. Because once it's out on the table, it's really hard to get back. So that was something that really helped us. Even if you have to go take a timeout, And if you've said the word divorce already, there's still hope. (laughs) Because now you can move forward in a way, you can walk in a way where you say, you can show, I don't mean that. And I'm sorry I said that. And the second kind of dovetails off that. And again, different people are different, okay? So there's no condemnation. This isn't a rule. But something that's really helped Tam and I, we never once have ever joked about our relationship. In the sense of like, if you did that, I'd leave you. <laughs> we don't, again, I'm not trying to say, like, we're so great. We have, the first three years of our marriage, you fast ask my wife, she would say the, probably the worst years of her life. They were hard. Because I was immature We were trying to figure out how to meld two lives. They were hard. I would say it wasn't until year like seven where finally both of us were like, yeah, this is pretty good. We like this. And now at year 20, I think that, you know, both of us, I would never want to marry again, ever. I think that we just have such a great relationship that I wouldn't, there's just not another woman I want to forge that with. (laughs) But all that to say is that you know, you just don't joke about it. It's not funny. It's not funny to because you want your spouse to know the hell or high water, thick or thin, rich or poor, sickness, health. You want them to, you want that commitment to be one hundred percent. That they always know. You know what? My wife could walk through you know Fabio's mansion and everything would be fine. My, my husband could, you know what? You want that. You want that trust. And so you can't have that unless you cherish and respect, unless you humble. It's just unachievable without those things. So I just encourage you. I don't know what your marriage is like. It's up to you. No marriage is without hope. No marriage is undone, right? There can be fixing but each person has to want to fix it. So next week, we look at some more tough stuff where Paul's going to talk about divorce and what contexts context there are for divorce. He's going to talk about how we can maybe save ourselves from divorce, but what happens if we end up going through it. And he's going to talk about um, how we as Christians can move on with our lives as Christians also. So, but thank goodness, that's the end of the sex talks. All right, so that's nice, huh? We can come to church next week and know no one has to say that word anymore, All Right? Good stuff. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you're the healer. You're the great physician. Lord, you heal souls, you heal hearts, and you heal marriages. Lord, help us to take and to implement your prescriptions. Help us to be those that humble ourselves, that cherish our wives, They respect our husbands. Lord, help us to be those that that humble ourselves between one another, that that, uh, even a husband as a leader, as a cherisher, would be one who is subject and yielded to his wife, and that a wife as a a follower of her husband and of you would be one who would be willing to humble herself in that also. We pray that we would be building wonderful relationships in our marriage, and we pray that our marriage would be helpful in building relationships in the church. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to bring uh, people here that don't know you. We pray that your gospel would go out. We pray this week that you give us divine opportunities to tell people about your love and your forgiveness, about your deliverance from hell, about your desire to be with them. I pray, Lord, that we be filled with your Holy Spirit, that we would be being filled, as it were, and that as we move and go about the different places we go, that we would not despise people measure them, but that we love them supernaturally. Thanks for being so good to us, never giving up on us. Thanks for all the forgiveness that we have in Jesus, and Lord, thank you for the the fresh start we have every moment. Lord, you're so kind, and we appreciate it. Pray for your blessing this week, and your guidance in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May God bless you guys.